You're listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. For more information, please visit our website at everynationgta.org. Alrighty, I am really excited for next Sunday. So I really hope it's in your calendar. Really hope that you can join us. Um, it's just something about us gathering together, uh, together as the people of God. In fact, Part of what we're going to be speaking about today is we continue in our summer series called Ecclesia or Ecclesia, if you want to be really uh, proper in its pronunciation. Um, welcome to all those that are watching. Um, if you're new to us, really a special welcome to you. And if you don't know who my, na- who <laughs> my name is, if you don't know who I am, my name is Richard. And it's a great joy to be able to bring the word to you today. And so we're going to jump in. And we've been, um, I think, we're in week three now, part three of this, uh, part four, at least this summer series, where we'll be really looking back at the early church and taking inspiration from their, how they began to organize themselves as the people of Jesus, as the community of Jesus that was fo- excuse me, following Jesus. And we're trying to look at what they did then, what they devoted, gave themselves to then, um, and have a look at what maybe perhaps informs what we should be giving ourselves to as the church today. And so we're going to be jumping in. We're going to go back to our core text called, uh, from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And I'm going to read it through. And um, many different people have pulled out different things from here. Some people said there's four key things at the early church. Others have said there's eight key things. We've narrowed we've uh, distilled it into six things. Um, and so we're going to be looking at those. We've been already looking at those. And so join me in Acts chapter 2 as we read through and see if you can see where uh, and what it is that the early church really gave themselves to as they devoted themselves as new followers of the risen Jesus. You must remember a majority of this early church were the Jewish people that had become to place the faith in the Messiah and Jesus. And so now they're looking at what it means to be a people that follows Jesus. So here we go. Acts chapter 2. Verse 42, and it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So what a picture, what a what a summary of the early church. Um, if you've read any length into the book of Acts, you'll know that that's, that church, as idealistic as that sounds, wasn't perfect. They had to work out common things that we have to work, relational challenges, you know, old ways of thinking. But nonetheless, they devoted and gave themselves to certain things. And the six things that we're going to be distilling have been over the summer is, number one, that they gave themselves to what we call deep relationship. They were a community, a fellowship for for many of them, it, it meant perhaps maybe being disowned from their family as they turned to Jesus. And this really did become their first port of uh, family, their, 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 their primary social relationship. They organized themselves into a fellowship that cared for one another, that supported uh, one another, that gathered together regularly they, in their homes, in the temples. Secondly, uh, we touched on this last week, they, they were committed to learning truth, the apostles' teaching. Now, we know that they were Jewish people, so they were well versed 
well-versed in the, the Torah and the Jewish Bible and Jewish scriptures, but the apostles' teaching was full of the, the teachings and the way of Jesus. And so they came together to learn what it meant to follow Jesus and learn about his teachings and put them into practice. Number three, we're going to spend time today looking at what it means for them to gather to worship together, the practice of them coming together in big meetings, small meetings, at the temple, in their homes, in small groups. And what characterized these meetings was a, a, a spirit of generosity, of joy, of praise. And um, and we see also that they uh, regularly feasted on, around the Lord's Supper. Number four, sacrificial service. They were radical and generous in their support of one another, not just spiritually, physically, materially, financially, as any had needed. They shared, they literally their lives were not their own, and so their possessions were not their own. And so we see a radical commitment to, to one another and to helping one another as those had need. Uh, number five, communal prayer. They devoted themselves not just to private prayer, but to group prayer, public prayer. They came together as they gathered in the public gatherings and in their homes. And then lastly, what we call winsome witness. They just were incredibly effective evangelistically. It says that the Lord was adding to the number daily. I mean, daily people were coming. Daily people were looking at this group, this new community, and say, like, there's something different about you people, something intriguing that um, that led people to become followers of Jesus, that led them to have favor where they were, and God then added those people to the community. And so we're going to be exploring these things, going to be exploring these six practices. Um, another way to look at it is just six kind of vital signs of health of a church. Now, just to be clear, um, no local church does all of these well. Typically, churches will do one or two of these things really well. And the goal is not to do all of them excellently and well, but the goal is to have a balance of these. And obviously a church will lean more strongly to one or two of these, depending on the gifts and the callings of, of the leaders. And none, But nonetheless, these are six vital ingredients that we want to look at our church and say, hey, we want to be a church that's faithful and fruitful um, in the pattern of the early church. And so this this ecclesia or this church, these, these community of worshippers, um, like breathing, breathing in and out, gathering together, we live into and out of this community, this worshiping community. We live into it and out of it as we take up certain practices, certain rules and rhythms of life, as we take up certain of these disciplines and add them into our regular rhythms of life. And so today we're going to be looking at this particular practice of them gathering regularly together as a worshiping community, whether it was at the public large gathering or in the small group gathering. Um, to understand that though, to understand what it means to be a worshiping community, we're going to go back a bit and understand what it means for the church to be a temple. And so I want to pull you into Ephesians chapter two, where Paul speaks about this and he says, so then addressing the church, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, for Jewish first century Jewish people, the temple was a massive part of your life, of your religion. In fact, Jerusalem, you centered your life around pilgrimage to the physical temple. But it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When, when God created everything and put man and woman into the Garden of Eden, it was like a temple. What is a temple? It's really where God's 
space and our space overlap, heaven and earth. And in the, the first couple of chapters of the book of Genesis, we see it seamlessly overlap. There's no division of heaven and earth. God walks freely. Mankind walks with God on the cooler day. There's friendship there. There's relationship there. God's entrusted mankind with um, organizing and bringing beauty and order uh, to be good stewards of his creation. That's our design. That's how God intended for the world to go. And obviously we see in chapter 3 of Genesis just the absolute breakdown of that. Sin enters, the fullness of humanity. That relationship is disconnected. And all of a sudden heaven and earth are now also not, not seamlessly integrated. There's God's space and our space. And the seemingly two can't interact with one another because we've broken covenant with God. But God doesn't want it to be that way. And so he gathers a people. And they set up a, firstly a tent, a literal tent, a tabernacle in the desert that then becomes this temple. And this temple then again becomes a place where God's space, his presence dwells. It's a sign. It's a foretaste of God always wanting to dwell with us. And there were certain rituals and certain people that were only allowed into that space because God is holy. And so we see that throughout the Old Testament, this temple becomes a real um a place again where heaven and earth overlap. And in the temple, there was imagery that was full of the Garden of Eden. It was a reminder of what was, what we lost, and what will be, what God is working towards. And then tragically, we see that that temple, that physical temple, is literally destroyed. It's, it's bashed down. It's ransacked. It's a real dark time in the nation of Israel. They've turned from God. God gives them over to their enemies. They get exiled. The temple is just absolutely flawed. They do rebuild it, but it's never rebuilt to the glory it once was. And then the prophets speak of a day where God is once again going to come again and dwell with us. Now this backstory helps you and I understand a little bit more now the story of Jesus. Because in the Gospel of John, John introduces Jesus and he says this, the word, speaking of Jesus, the word became flesh and pitched a tent among us or dwelt among us and we saw his glory. John is deliberately and absolutely intentionally drawing reference to this temple. He says this temple now no longer is a physical thing. Well, no longer a building, but it's now embodied in Jesus. Jesus is the presence of God, a heaven on earth. And now we see Jesus in his life uh, take on that. And then Jesus ascends to heaven. He leaves, but then he breathes his spirit. He pours his spirit out on his church. And the church now continues to be this temple, not a physical building, but to be this temple uh, like Paul says in Ephesians that we're built up by one another. As we become followers of Jesus, we act as this temple of God. The church is the presence of God and is meant to be a sign and a foretaste that one day God is ultimately going to restore the whole earth. The whole earth will be filled with the glory of God. But we as the people of God have a responsibility as his church to continue being like Jesus, um, pitching our tent amongst people and giving them an idea of what God's like and doing the crazy things that we see Jesus doing healing, deliverance, and see salvation. And so that's just a backstory to understand of, of, of the church being a temple. Now, the first instance of the church gathering like this temple, like the people of God, the presence of God as a worshiping community, happens in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. It says, On the first day of the week, the first day of the week was a Sunday, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So he liked to preach long messages, <laughs> right? So 
we're not going to go to midnight here, but I just want to let you know there's a biblical precedent to speak long messages, all right? So all of you that want me to be shorter and shorter, maybe it's not as biblical as you think it is. I digress. But they began to switch from the, the Saturday, the Sabbath, to being a central part of their day to the Sunday. Why? Because Jesus was risen um, on the first day of the week. And so very quickly, the Sunday gathering became a cornerstone of the church, of gathering together, to worship together, to break bread together, to hear scripture read, to hear preaching, to hear singing. Very similar elements to what we do even today, some 2,000 years later. There was formal and an informal aspects of that service. There were certain prayers that read together. There were certain rituals that they did together. It happened in the temple, in the synagogues, in their homes. And we see all of this happening, and the elements are the same. So the forms of the church since the early days of the church, some 2,000 plus years later, right now, churches, worshiping communities are gathering in basement like this, in the home like where maybe you are, in a church building, in an arena, in a sanctuary, under a tree. There's many different ways that the church gathers. So the form of how the church gathers is not really important, but the elements of that are important, but not even the elements are the most important. The focus is the most important thing. The focus becomes worshiping community uh, under the lordship of Jesus Christ as his followers. And so we see that. We see that there's tremendous liberty actually in the New Testament, not to prescribe how it's to do church, but to describe how the early church did it and to have these elements incorporated. We are in fact incorporated. We do singing. We just had some great singing in worship. We've got fellowship. And typically when we meet together, we like to hang out together and break bread, literally feast together. Time to time we'll do communion, we'll take communion, we do scripture reading, we do a call to worship, we do preaching, we do all these elements, we pray. These are elements that typically make up what it means when we gather as a church community. And so very quickly, the Sunday gathering or the weekly gathering at a set time and place became a cornerstone of the church's practice. And that has lasted some 2,000 plus years. It became a regular rhythm, a regular, they devoted themselves to gathering regular in homes at the temple in large settings, small settings, as this worshiping community on mission with Jesus. Now here in Canada... Um, I've mentioned this before when we've done a different message on um, just the, the rhythm of work and rest, but it was only up until 1985 that there were Sunday laws. In fact, some parts of the States, there still are Sunday laws. Um, here in Canada, it was called the Lord's Day Act. And it was an act that basically banned anything from happening on a Sunday, any, any retail or commerce. Um, maybe you're as old as I am and can remember growing up in times where shops were just not open on a Sunday. You couldn't go to the movies on a Sunday. You couldn't go to the grocery store on a Sunday. If you didn't buy your milk on Saturday, you just went without milk on your coffee and cereal on Sunday if you didn't have anything. It wasn't like it is today where it's just 24-7. You can get anything and demand anything to be got. Um, but in 1985 here in Canada, that law was overturned where they began to say that it was unconstitutional. And so you're talking like not even 40 years ago, not even 40 years ago, and how quickly that shifted. Now, some 40 to 50 years ago, Canada went from being a largely Christian nation to largely now what's called a secular nation. And I think there might be some correlation with that. Obviously, there's more factors that, but I think there's a strong correlation when we began to not prioritize setting a time to gather together as the Lord's people, when we didn't have the distractions of movies, of shopping, of retail, of commerce, when literally the law helped us focus our time to gather together as 
as a worshiping community. I think when that was all stripped away, it became that much harder, right? It became that much harder to prioritize that. It became that much harder. And, I, and if you're like me now, sports, uh, kids' sports happen on a Sunday. Um, things happen on a Sunday, and it's just a given you would do that. And it's kind of a strange thing when you get into the office or wherever you're on, the, on, uh, on a Monday morning, and people are, what did you do with your weekend? And you might mention, I went to church. Like, what? Like, that's, that's still a thing? <laughs> like, people still do that? Obviously, the last two years of a pandemic have also incredibly made it hard for us to regather. I mean, even our community, we're still not at regularly gathering on a large scale weekly. We're doing it monthly. But I hope that through this message, we can see the priority of whether it's a large setting on a Sunday or a smaller setting in your home right now, maybe there's a few we gathered, or it's a midweek group, the importance of us being in a regular rhythm of coming together as a worshiping community. So, you may say, what is the big deal about a church gathering? And it's a fair question. What is, what is the big deal about a church gathering? And I wonder for us here in the West, because we have, have such religious freedom, maybe we should look at it from a different question point of view and say, why is it that a church gathering like that, to sing, to read scripture, to hear someone speak about that scripture together, together, why would that be such a threat from some of the most powerful governments historically and even up to today? So much so that they would shut it down, declare illegal, arrest people, even potentially kill people for doing what you and I are doing right now, a gathering. Why would it be such a threat? And maybe if we understand why it's such a threat, we can see the importance and what we stand to lose if we don't see it as a priority, even amongst our incredible freedoms that we have here in the Western world. And so I want to talk a little bit now about the church gathered being um, an instrument of worship and witness amongst the nations. And so we're going to look at a little bit about that. And so remember we tracked with Eden, there was a tabernacle, a temple, Jesus comes along, he is the ultimate temple, all of that was pointed towards Jesus now fills his church with his spirit. And when Jesus poured out his spirit in Pentecost, it was literally like what would happen with the temple, that God's presence would fill the inner sanctuary. And so we see that becomes a worship, a sign of worship and witness, not just for the Jewish people, but it was always for the nations. It's a sign that when we gather together, that we're declaring our worship and our allegiance, our attention and our affection and our allegiance goes towards not a government, not a nation, not a culture. We can be proud of those things, that we don't lose those things, but our allegiance is to something higher. Our ultimate allegiance is to the way of Jesus now. And throughout history, that's been a threat to some governments. It's been a threat to some leaders who don't like that. Even in the first century church, we see that. They began to... they originally thought, this is just some cult, it's going to go away, these are crazy people, ignore them. And that didn't go away. And we saw that the church, these followers of Jesus began growing and growing and growing, so much so that they changed the known world at that time. And so I believe it is, it is this act of worship and witness to Jesus as Lord, to Jesus as King, that poses the greatest threat to the powers that be, whether that's supernatural demonic powers that be, or whether that's political powers that be. That is the threat, and that is the importance and the power when we gather together as this worshiping community, wherever we find ourselves in this world, and whatever culture we find ourselves, we're declaring by doing that. We're declaring something by doing that. We're declaring where our worship and our witness lies as we prioritize the gathering like that, whether it's a small midweek group, small group, whether it's on a Sunday, whether it's high uh, liturgy and traditional aspects of a service, where it's very informal and contemporary. The point is that we gather under the banner of Jesus. And so I like analogies. I like pictures to kind of bring this a little bit more closer to home. And so I think we're familiar, particularly here in Canada. Many of us are not. We're not born in Canada. We're particularly familiar with embassies. 
Um, an embassy, typically an, an embassy represents a foreign country in a country. And so if you go into downtown Toronto, you'll see some embassies. And so five years ago, I had to go to the U.S. embassy, you know, the American embassy in downtown Toronto. I was uh, going to be doing some studies in the States and I had to get a student visa to be able to go into the States for that studies. And so, um, and so in a, in a similar way, and we're going to use uh, an embassy. An embassy is kind of like, the church gathering is like an embassy. It's like an outpost of the kingdom of God. And so it represents a different rule and authority within another per- realm of rule and authority. And so the U.S. Embassy represents the rule and authority of America within Canada. And so um, they make it very clear when you enter, there's an American flag um, as you enter. And so the church gathering is like that. It's a visible and physical manifestation and witness of our loyalty to Jesus, that the Jesus flag flies above our buildings, so to speak, metaphorically. We don't meet in a church building. We meet in a university campus um, films, but we turn that place and into an embassy on a Sunday morning when we gather and meet at Innes. And the church gathering identifies citizens just like you would through a passport and an embassy. How do they identify citizenship into this kingdom of God? Through different ordinances that have been in practice, through the ordinance of baptism. Baptism is an important outward declaration of your citizenship in a different kingdom now, under a different Lord. And we regularly reaffirm our citizenship through the Lord's Supper, taking communion. That's, a, that's something that's reserved for the followers of Jesus. And so that's a way that we remind ourselves of our citizenship lies under a different government, under a different Lord, under a different kingdom. And just like a country, if you wanted to become an American citizen, they wouldn't just want you to have a passport. They'd want you to learn what it means to be American. The values and the customs and the culture, they would want you to become American as much as possible. And so in the same way, our church gathering, we want to form one another into what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. We call it discipleship or spiritual formation or, or sanctification, whatever way, but we're to be formed into the values, the cultures and the customs of what it means to follow Jesus, even to the point where that maybe clashes with the customs and values of of our culture, our surrounding culture, but our allegiance then is in question and our allegiance must go to our King Jesus. Just like church gatherings, they'll mobilize citizens to live as ambassadors of that country, of that kingdom throughout their day-to-day life. And so the church gathering, as we gather, we mobilize and empowered and inspired to live out Monday through Saturday or whenever we gather to live out what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And then our church gathering, obviously, and ultimately is a place where we worship, where we declare the worth of God, the worth of Jesus in our lives and give him our worship. We join in with what Revelation 5 says. Then I looked and I heard around the throne of the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And so when we worship, we're saying you are worthy. Worship, worship, you are worthy. 
And the question really is just what will we worship? It's not a question, are you going to worship or not? Right now, if you looked at how you spend your money and your time, we'll give you an indicator of what's worthy in your life, right? Those are indicators how we spend our week. We can't say, hey, this is important to me, but never show up. It's, it's, it'd be like saying, hey, I'm, I'm a part of this basketball team, but I never show up to practice. I never show up to games, but I'm a part of this basketball team. Well, part of being part of a team is to show up and to be part of that team and to be take your place and bring your gifts and your skills to that to make that team better. And so when we show up together, we're saying, God, you're worthy. And also we're saying we're worth one another. You're worthy. You're worthy of me showing up. You're worthy of me putting a priority on meeting with you, with you and gathering together with you to worship God. And so our great need is to be part of a local worshiping church community. It is a great need that gathers and scatters, that, that comes together and goes out into big groups, small groups, individually, that we have that rhythm of breathing and that we regularly gather as a sign of worship and witness. Uh, worship to God, witness to ourselves, to one another, our families, our kids, and to the culture around us and saying this Sunday laws will come and go. Who knows in a hundred years time what laws will be there to prevent or maybe perhaps a renewal of those laws of saying we want to be a people and a culture that doesn't work 24-7, that prioritizes rest and worship. Who knows? We're not in control of that, but we're going to be a people regardless that worship and witness like millions of our brothers and sisters right now don't have that luxury, don't have that freedom, but are still choosing at great risk to their lives and their families to do that, to be a sign of worship and witness. Uh, I like what Don Whitney says um, about just the unique aspect of gathering together. He says, there's an element of worship and Christianity that cannot be experienced in private worship or by watching worship. There are some graces and blessings that God gives only in the meeting together with other believers. Do you believe that? Like, do you genuinely believe that? And it's really hard because we live in a culture and society that increasingly underscores our individualism and our personal choice. And I think individualism and personal choice are great things in balance. Um, but we seem to be taking them to an absolute extreme. It's all about the individual and it's all about your choice and you're the authority of your life. Don't let any institution or person dictate your life. And that is going to be in contradiction to the kingdom of God. It just doesn't work like that. Yeah, Jesus values you as an individual person. Absolutely. You're a unique. And there's no one quite like you. Don't, don't try to be like someone else. That's not what we're saying. But absolutely every single one of us is going to need to lay down some of these things and see the priority of meeting and gathering together. It's not just me and Jesus. It's never just been me and Jesus. It's an important first step. But it's about Jesus then bringing you into a spiritual family, into a community that meets together regularly, at worships and witnesses regularly together. That We don't just say, hey, I'm a part of that local church, but we never show up. We never give our gifts and our talents. We never know what it means, the joy of serving and to be served. And so what he's saying in this quote is basically there is some grace, there is grace reserved for you that you will never tap into if you cut yourself off from meeting regularly together. God's grace comes to us in many ways, through reading scripture by myself, through worshiping by myself, absolutely, through doing a lot of things by myself. But there's a whole other pool of grace that's reserved when we meet together as the people of God. And so our great need is for that. And our great challenge 
isn't persecution. We don't live in a part of the world where we're persecuted for doing this. We have great religious freedom or no government threat as it stands right now to gathering like this. We don't have those challenges. Our challenges are a little bit more subtle. Our challenges are this hyper-individualism. You know, our challenge is it's a beautiful day and the beach is calling, right? Or the mall is calling. Or the movies is calling. Like 40 years ago, that even wasn't an option. And so our challenges are different here in a great free society. Our challenges are, are one of apathy. I love what Eugene Peterson says in his fantastic book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. It's a long quote, but let me read this. He says, we live in what one writer has called the age of sensation. We think if we don't feel something, there can be no authenticity in doing it. But the wisdom of God says something different that we can act ourselves into a new way of feeling much quicker than we can feel ourselves into a new way of acting. Worship is an act that develops feelings for God, not a feeling for God that is expressed in an act of worship. And then he goes on to say, Worship does not satisfy our hunger for God. It whets our appetite. Our need for God is not taken care of by engaging in worship. It deepens. It overflows the hour and permeates the week. There's a lot there, but did you get that? And so sometimes we can say, oh, I don't feel like gathering. I don't feel like going to my small group. Um, we've all had that. I've led a small group and I felt like that sometimes, right? I don't feel like getting up and driving however long it takes me to in a college where we gather. And so what Eugene is saying is that that's what we call a sacrifice of praise and worship. When we put aside our feelings and say, no, that worship is the act primarily that then develops feelings for God. When we commit, when we put ourselves and say, this is a priority, I'm going to show up. I don't feel like it, I'm going to show up. And most times, not always, but most times when we do that, our feelings follow. Our feelings come in line. And actually when we gather together, and there's something about gathering in bigger numbers. There's, there's something about gathering in a small group, but there's also something about gathering and worshiping with 50 people or 100 people or 150 people. If you've ever been to a, a worship night where there's been a 1,000 people, there's something you just get in those moments that you're just not going to get by yourself or with you and two or three buddies. Like God's designed to do certain things in certain groupings. And we miss out on that when we don't prioritize those groupings. There's something that stirs our hearts when we're worshiping with hundreds of other people, dozens of other people, and we're hearing their voices. Like right here this morning, we have 14 people, and it's different than it was last week when there was four of us here. Just hearing different voices, right? Not the best voices, my voice is included in that. We're not all Jacob Moon, but it doesn't matter. It's here, and we're saying God's worthy. God's worthy of us singing together. God's worthy of us worshiping together. And so our great challenge is one of apathy, of being in a society that prioritizes feeling, how you feel about something. Your feelings are important. We've talked at length about emotions. But I like what Eugene is saying, is we can quickly act our way into better feelings than we can feel our way into better actions. Right, And so the other challenge for us is neglect. And here straight from Scripture, Hebrews 10 says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. As is the habit of some. So it was a challenge for the first century church as it is for the 21st century church. There's the challenge, the, the temptation of neglecting this and saying, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll see that next week. I don't feel like going this week. I'll go next week. And that quickly becomes a habit. And all of a sudden, we don't show up for weeks at our small group or weeks at our church service or online or, or in person or wherever it may be taking place. And so... Um, 
there's many other challenges to that, but let me underscore this again of why a church gathering is important, why it's posed a threat historically and even today. And the Christian faith has strongly and consistently emphasized corporate worship of gathering together. The, the writer of Hebrews is writing to the church in a time when it was was persecution if you gathered. There was there was threats to you and your family, and your you were your allegiance was to Caesar, not to Jesus. You could have Jesus as many other underlings, but your your allegiance was to something else, and they lived a different allegiance. And so, in other words, even with all those threats and all those challenges, it, the benefits and the necessity still outweighs the risk for us. And so, I want to leave you with a practice. What I've been what we've been trying to do throughout this series is like get very practical in the end. And so I hope that that stirred you to see the importance of gathering, whether that's a small group gathering, a large group gathering. The regular weekly practice of gathering is something that's not ever going to go away. It may take different shapes and forms for sure, but there's something that God has for you and I that we will not get if we don't prioritize that. How do we do that? Here's the practice, conviction and calendar. Conviction, have a conviction, cultivate a conviction that corporate worship, that gathering together regularly is an act of response to God, not an act of your initiation. And Christian faith ultimately is a response to God. God has done something. What are you and I going to respond? God has done something. How are you and I going to respond? And when we flip it like that, we take the decision-making out of our hands, not my initiation. I decide I'm going to worship. I decide I'm going to go to, it's a good idea. It's like, oh, I'm responding to God's call to worship him. Have a conviction, and that's what we're doing. Oh, I'm responding to God's call to gather together with the community of believers. Oh, I'm responding to God's call to be a worship and witness amongst the nations of the world in my time, in my culture. And just that little bit of a flip might help us get a more of a conviction that this is a, a kind of a holy fear before God versus putting it like, I decide what I do. And then that bleeds into the second part. It bleeds into your calendar. If it's important, you'll make time for it. Simple as that. It is as simple as that. What's worthy gets into your calendar right now. What's important gets into your calendar right now. And so my practical appeal to you is, now I know in the summer it's sometimes a little bit tricky. Our rhythms are a little bit more um, loose. But as we come to the fall, the rhythm of our church, if Every Nation GTA is your home or becoming your spiritual home, if you believe that the Lord is, here's the practice we would love to see you get into, that you would prioritize gathering on a Sunday, whether we're in person downtown at Innes College or whether we're meeting in smaller groups at in-home worship, that you would prioritize that Sunday gathering and that you would prioritize meeting together during the week with a small group to take further this response to worship and witness. And so I hope that becomes a conviction of you. I hope that becomes a conviction of our church. And I hope that we, like the early church, devote ourselves to the practice of gathering together as a worship community, as a sign of a worship and witness in our time and our day and our age. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. Thanks for joining us. For more information, visit our website at everynationgta.org.